we're going to continue with um, our study of the mothers of Israel. We began uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about um, the women's role in the Bible or, or the, the, the high regard that Scripture has for women. Last week, um, I, I had to teach by video because I was in Washington, but we talked about Eve and the significance of her life, her creation. Eve is different than any other woman because she's the only woman who ever existed, just as Adam was the only man who ever existed, that did not have to deal with the, the taint of original sin or the taint of, uh, of being fallen right away in their life. So Eve's unique. But today we're going to uh, move through uh, the pages of Genesis and we're going to be looking at uh, Sarah, and it's Sarah that helps us learn about faith. Now, there's chapter after chapter in Genesis. Uh, her story begins in chapter 12, but um, we're going to read for our verse tonight, Hebrews 11. And you might want to turn to Hebrews 11, or it's in your notes, while some of you may be turning. Um, Michael, it's good to have you guys here. Bless you. God bless you. Um, always good to have our missionaries home and, and uh, be sure to greet them after the service. But Hebrews 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. And the writer of Hebrews is so gracious. He says, Even beyond the proper time of life, she was 90 years old, and they're throwing a baby shower for her magnificent, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. <clears throat> Therefore, there was born even one uh, of one man and him as good as dead. Now, writer of Hebrews wasn't quite as gracious to Abraham as he was to Sarah, but the emphasis is on this incredible faith that they manifested. Here's a man, uh, 100, his wife is 90, but God had promised them a child and it would be a child through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And they were up and down. They were up and down. Somebody came to me one time and said, pastor, there's a, there's a verse, um, here in the new Testament that says Abraham staggered not at the promises of God. Um, and it's the image of somebody losing their footing and, and, and collapsing. And he, this, this person said, it seems to me he did stagger a time or two. And um, I said, not only did he stagger, he fell flat. But what that word means that's translated in the King James, he staggered not at the promises of God. It meant that whenever he stumbled, he did not stay down. It's not bad to stumble. I mean, it's, it's not pleasant. It's not like we put on our agenda for today, let's stumble. But uh, when it happens, we don't like it. But the, the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament said a righteous man may fall seven times, but a righteous person gets back up. And that's what happened with Abraham. They, they had some low spots. Sarah had low spots, but she made it into faith's hall of fame. Uh, because she got back up. Um, we're going to talk about three things tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about her origins, uh, how, how we meet her, where she came from, uh, her journey uh, toward the land that God had promised, and her assignment in this great role of redemption and grace. 
Um, now, like most of us, Sarah's great life of faith uh, got mixed up from time to time. I, I wish I could look at Sarah and, and say she was perfect, but she had moments of doubt. She had moments of frustration. And can you believe this? Coming from a good Assemblies of God woman, she was even mean sometimes, you know. She was like all of us. We had things we're very proud of, things we're very much ashamed of, but she was faithful. Her name means uh, princess. Now, uh, Sarai, which was her original name, is really, it's a variation of Sarah. Um, uh, Sarai meant princess. Um, it, it could mean my princess, uh, like you would talk about your little girl. But when God changed her name at age 90, he was saying that she's not just a princess, she's a princess over many people. Just like Abraham would have his name changed from exalted father to father of nations. Sarah didn't mean princess of nations, but it meant that she had a great big family over whom she was the princess. And uh, it's, it was certainly a, uh, an honored thing to come from the Lord. But the interesting thing about Sarah is that um, she, didn't, she didn't get this wonderful name change until she was 90. That means she's older than anybody in here by a long shot. And you're saying, thank you, Pastor, thank you. Yes, older than anyone in here by a long shot. We think about Peter and you know, his, his upgrade in his name. We think about, you know, um, um, God marking that as a moment of, of distinction. But what we forget about is that sometimes God doesn't give us the promise of significance until we think it's too late for us to feel significant. Um, her overwhelming desire, which was a normal desire, was to have children, yet she was barren. My notes say bare. Autocorrect does a number on me all the time. She was not bare. She was barren. Um, according to Genesis eleven twenty nine and 30, her frustration led her to foolish behavior that resulted in Abraham having uh, husband and wife relations with her servant girl, Hagar. Now, it was a custom of the land. It doesn't mean it was a command of the Bible or, or permitted in Scripture, but it was a custom in the land. If you owned a slave, that slave was your property. And if that slave had a child by your husband, it was considered to be your child. Um, it, was a, it was a matter of ownership, not a matter of relationship. It was a matter of ownership. And it was a tragic thing. But um, what Sarah, and she suggested it to, to her husband, Abraham. And, you know, our tendency is to say, well, she shouldn't have done that. Well, I don't remember reading anything about Abraham protesting or he seemed to think it was a good idea. Uh, but what it did was to scar the family. It embittered Sarah and resulted in Hagar and Ishmael being banished into the wilderness. In fact, this may not sound politically correct. Uh, I, I don't mean it in any offensive way. But it can be argued that tensions in the Middle East today occur in large measure because of Sarah's good idea. She thought that, uh, you know, God always keeps his word. But sometimes he needs help. 
and God does not need help. Um, now, what we want to be sure that we do tonight is we don't want to focus on her failures. Um, we have a tendency to think of Sarah's uh, <clears throat> anger uh, with her husband. Uh, but we got to remember, she didn't live like that. That wasn't, that wasn't the standard operating procedure. They had moments, yes, but she didn't operate like that. In fact, um, we sometimes have a tendency to think, Sarah, in terms of her meanness toward Hagar. And boy, did she mistreat Hagar. She really did. She really did. And, and sent her... Um, um, in a uh, condition of, you know, expecting a child sent her out into the wilderness. Boy, that was not good. But, you know, this is the bad thing about, um, about being in the Bible. God doesn't do any cover-ups. Now, he forgives, but when, when something in our life needs to be used as a lesson, you uh, the Bible's not afraid to, I mean, it talks about the greatness of David, but it's not afraid to talk about his adultery and his murder. And the same with Sarah. We're, we're, we cringe a little bit with Sarah. We even kind of think of her as a, as a bit of a uh, embittered woman. But when we get to the New Testament, Peter uses her as a model of a wife that honored her husband. So that's what we've got to focus on. We get, and, and she made it to Hebrews chapter 11, which is a phenomenal accomplishment in itself. So what I want to say to you tonight is that uh, the more we study Sarah, whew, God showed us her life, warts and all, just like he showed us Abraham, warts and all, to show us that even though we live by faith, it's still an ongoing process. And it, it, you don't have to be a flawless person to be a person who lives by faith. Thank God. Most of us would be in trouble. I know I would. If I had to be flawless, I would, I would have been out of the running. First thing I remember maybe was four. You know, I'd be out of the running. <clears throat> but uh, she was a woman of grace. And this is another thing about Sarah. Not only was she a woman who received the grace of the Lord... But she overcame almost insurmountable odds. You, you got to remember, um, here's a woman that everything in our minds would scream, look, your life is what it is. Let it go. Let it go. But she was a woman of such tenacity and a woman of such virtue and faith that at age 90, I mean, she's been drawing Social Security for 25 years. She decides God still has a plan and a purpose for my life. Now, let's talk about her, her origins. She, um, uh, we, we need to begin by talking about um, something that is unacceptable in our culture and not understandable in our culture. But she was a half-sister to her husband, Abraham. They had the same, um, uh, what was it, the same father but not the same mother? I don't have it backwards, do I? That's the way it was. Same father but different mother. Um, this created an opportunity for deception by Abraham in regard to one time he did it with uh, King Abimelech uh, and one time with Pharaoh in Egypt. 
um, Abraham said, boy, if they see my wife and she was beautiful, here's a woman who's, who's well into what we would call, um, retirement age, but she's still stunningly beautiful. I mean, she, she was, she was a beautiful woman so much so that when she was past the age of retirement, Abraham said, if they ever look at my wife and realize she's my wife, they'll kill me to get me out of the way. And uh, so she was a beautiful woman and it, uh, it led to a bad decision by Abraham. He, he lied twice, said, she's my sister. He did that to, to preserve his life. But both times his wife is taken away and put into the harem of the king. Now God in both instances kept uh, the, 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 the king's from touching her uh, sexually. Uh, in fact, God began to bring judgment on the house of both of these kings. Even gave Abimelech a dream where God said, you're a dead man for what you've done. And, and it, it, you almost want to laugh. You feel sorry for Abimelech. He says, hey, she, he said she was my sister. I'm, I, God, don't blame me. He did this, you know. And the funny thing is that God, God said, yeah, well, you're right. And God says, that's why you're still alive right now is because you were deceived. Um, but he lied in both situations, a half-truth. He said, she's my sister. And then when they were correcting him and rebuking him for lying, he said, well, it's true. We, we are half-brother and sister. Um, both of them, yeah, here it is in the notes, were children of, of Tara. She was 10 years younger than, than her husband. We don't know anything about the early years of their marriage except that uh, Sarah was, was barren. Um, now, I, this is what we need to deal with just for a second here. Uh, marriages to close relatives were not considered scandalous during the patriarchal times. I mean, it's against the law now. We, we wouldn't dream of doing something like that. Um, but such unions were permitted from the time of Adam and Eve until long after the days of Abraham. It wasn't until the days of the law, uh, and you can look in Leviticus 18 and 20. It wasn't until the days of the law that such unions were prohibited. Um, we, we don't have all the answers to this. Uh, it goes back to the, to the call-in radio shows. Well, where did, where did, you know, uh, where did Cain and Abel get their wives? Well, I mean, we just don't know what to do with it except to say it was their sisters. But what we understand, uh, if I'm understanding what uh, they taught us in science class, is that the genetic pool, the, the genetic makeup after creation was of such purity, was of such purity that the dangers of that kind of relationship would not have created the physical problems it would today. Still, it's hard for us to wrap our head. You know, what, what do we call a, a shallow victory? Oh, it's like kissing your sister. Yeah. You know, it's different in our culture, but it was not so then. It was not a scandalous thing then. Um, they were from an area known as Sumeria, not Samaria, the one you read about in the New Testament, but Sumeria near the joining of the Tigris and Euphrates River. Uh, it's in what today would, would be present day Iraq. Their city near the Persian Gulf was called Ur of the Chaldees or Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, it was a powerful, influential city whose leaders served the Babylonian moon god. There's a Jewish tradition <clears throat> that says 
<coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that said that uh, they lived near the Persian Gulf, that Abraham learned of God. In fact, the tradition says that his father and family were idol makers. This is not in the scripture, it's a tradition. But it says they were idol makers and that one day um, Abraham had come to the conclusion that we sell these gods, people pray to these gods, but I made these gods. I shaped these images. There's nothing true about these images. And the tradition of uh, some uh, rabbis is that as he stood on the shore of the uh, Persian Gulf, God spoke to him and said, look up into the heavens. Now, now we know God told him this, but this is, they say, was the, the origin of it. Look up into the heavens, and if you can count the stars, look down at the seashore. If you can count the grains of sand, you'll be able to count the number of your descendants. Um, that's a possibility. Um, we, we, we don't have any, it's not in the Bible, so we don't, we don't automatically default to that's true. The, the likelihood is that um, the knowledge of the Lord was passed on uh, from righteous ancestors. Uh, let, me, let me explain one more thing. I don't mean to sound like I'm talking down to you. I just don't know if we think about this. The, the, the secular education system that we're in today teaches us that monotheism in, in general and the worship of Jehovah, our God in particular, is the product of evolution. In other words, if you go to uh, and do any kind of anthropological studies, they'll tell you that, oh, men worship the sun, men worship, you know, bats, men worship, you know, rocks or whatever. And eventually, as man got smarter, he developed this system of, well, maybe we just need to consolidate everything. And just let's just say there's one God. And then out of that evolutionary idea of one God, the, the great religions of the world developed, they would say Judaism and, and um, uh, Islam and, and Christianity. It, but it was a process of much evolution. But uh, Levins, I want to tell you, we believe just exactly the opposite. We believe that um, monotheism and the knowledge of God, that's where we started. That's not what we evolved into. And what you get when you read the first six chapters of Genesis, you have people that have moved Adam and Eve from a perfect relationship with God and a perfect, from our perspective, knowledge of God to not an evolution, but a devolution, you know, moving, falling away from that. So um, it wasn't that with the passing of thousands and thousands of years, somebody came up with the idea of, I can't remember all these gods, let's just worship one. No, there was understanding about the nature of God and it was passed down. And instead of man growing into it, what you've got is man filtering away from it. But there were righteous people uh, from the fall of Adam and Eve forward. Um, And for instance, you know, whenever um, we read the book of Genesis, there are characters scattered throughout the land, people like Melchizedek. Um, when you get into the journeyings of Israel, you've got Jethro, who was uh, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses. You've got Balaam, who uh, he's sometimes called a false prophet. No, I think he was a true prophet, but I think he went bad. Uh, But what I'm saying is that God always had his witness throughout the world. Um, it, It didn't just come upon, you know, 
Abraham as the first person who ever had a knowledge of the true and the living God. So I think it's probably more likely that Abraham um, and his family had the, uh, the knowledge of God, but so much had been forgotten, so much had been watered down through the years, and they were living in a city whose patron saint, you might say, was the Babylonian moon god. So it was very much a culture of idolatry, and it was very much a culture of unbelief. And when God called him away from that, when God called him away from that, he was calling him away to return to the roots of his religion as he understood it. God was getting him out of a system. And God's always done that. That's, that's the call for us in the New Testament. Come out from among them and be separate. The, the, the message in the book of Revelation is come out from Babylon. That's never changed. Now, God, you know, there are times that the church has said, well, boy, we really need to literally come out of the world and have nothing to do with them. And, and then you start, that started the monastic movement and, you know, the, the monks and all of that. And they served a good purpose. But the church had to learn that um, it, it's, it's okay to pull out of society, to dedicate yourself to a task like the monks did. But that's not the way the church can live. The church is in the world, but Jesus described it this way. You are in the world, but you're not of the world. So when we get to the book of Revelation, the great call from John, the spirit of God speaking through John is come out of Babylon, come out of Babylon. And you say, why does he say Babylon? Because in Genesis 11, but just before the story of Abraham started, we're told about the tower um, of Babel in the plain of Shinar. And it was, the, it was at Babylon that a, a different world system than the one God intended began to articulate itself and begin to um, manifest itself. Before then, it was kind of the Wild West, you might say. But, but by the time you get to Genesis 11, there's two cultures. There's the people of God and there's the people of Babylon. And Babylon is not, in my opinion, in the New Testament, is not talking about a location, a geographical location. It's talking about a system. It's ta- God isn't saying, get out of the Middle East, that place called Babylon. He's saying, get out of this system. Get out of this system. In fact, the mark of the beast, whatever the mark of the beast may be, you know, that mark in your hand or your forehead, whatever it may be, the mark of the beast is our affiliation with that broken system. So it's, it's a big deal when, when God called Abraham, um, when he called him out. Now, uh, let's see. Let me see where I am on my notes. Oh, I, I just was talking about this. A letter E, I think it is on your outline. I think is what it is. Uh, a remnant existed, uh, Melchizedek I mentioned. But God was planning on using Abraham and Sarah to establish an entire nation for three things. Okay, One, through Abraham he's going to establish a nation that will model godly living. Exemplify truth, model truth. Number two, they are to exemplify worship. When you get to the book of Leviticus and you're learning about these feasts and the sacrifices and the holy days, it's more than just ritual. It's God codifying or um, um, laying out worship in such a way that he will say, people will look at you and not only see this, say this is how we should live, but they will look at Israel and say, this is how we should worship. 
Um, there was a reason for each of those five major sacrifices. There was a reason for each of those major festivals and feasts. And when we're in the time of the year that was, is just loaded with uh, those feasts and celebrations. Um, and that was to be Abraham and Sarah's heritage to us. But thirdly, and remember we talked about this last week, it was to bring a Messiah. Messiah was going to come through them. In the book of Romans, it says that the word of God and the knowledge of his plan was given to us through this nation, through Israel. And uh, this was Abraham and Sarah's promise and their responsibility. So they're excited about this. Abraham, who means exalted father, is now, his name is about to be changed to father of nations. And then Sarah, that meant named by her daddy, my little princess, is now being princess of a multitude. Okay, there's only one problem. They have no children. They have no children because Sarah was barren. And what do they do with that? So God calls them out. The book of Hebrews says that they're looking for a city, but not for a natural city. This is a city whose ruler and maker and builder is God. They know they're on a spiritual journey. Let's take a look at their journey for just a few minutes tonight. In Genesis 12, 1, Abraham, or Abram at that time, is commanded to leave his home and go to a land to which God would lead him. His obedience is recorded not only in Genesis 12, but also in Hebrews 11. Listen to what it says about Abraham and, of course, Sarah. He went out with no idea of where he was going. Wow. Wow. Now, it was a slow-going trip at first. Terah, the father of Abraham and Sarah, led the family to Haran. This is about 650 miles up the Euphrates. I mean, he gets up, doesn't know where he's going. It'd be like us leaving tonight, and about the time we get to Baltimore, we decide to stop for a little while. That's what happened to them. Um, Really, even further than that. And they they lived there for a while. Terah died. And the family moved on toward the land we know as Canaan. Abraham now is 75, Sarah 65. Now to Sarah's credit, her eternal credit, she was willing to follow the dream God had placed in her husband's heart. She was ready for him to be the father of a great nation. This was something that had been living in them for years. So they travel about another 350 miles going at the average rate of a caravan that would have taken them six or seven weeks. And they came to a place called Bethel. Now we remember Bethel from uh, the life of Jacob. Jacob, when he was running uh, from his brother, uh, it, it, he, he stopped at a place called Bethel or Bethel. We call it Bethel. And he made, uh, you know, a, a bed out of a pillow out of stones. And, and that's where he had his, his uh, vision or his dream about the the stairway. King James says ladder, but it's really a word for a stairway or a staircase to heaven. And uh, uh, from this staircase, he saw angels uh, angels of God ascending and descending. I think the significance of the dream was twofold. God sees me and, and, and heaven is on assignment to bring to pass the will of God here on earth. To me, one of the most powerful things about Jacob stopping at Bethel is that he stopped at the place where Abraham, where his grandfather had stopped years earlier. 
And, and to me, it shows that there was a great connection and God knows how to connect generations together. It's, it's amazing to me that uh, long after our lives have ended, our prayers live on. I think the lesson from this, and I could stay here the rest of the night, but I won't. The, 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 the lesson to me is that wherever you build an altar, stuff continues to happen. So thank God for intercessory prayer. So they were in Bethel for a while. Famine forces them to move to Egypt. Um, and that's where he runs into conflict with Pharaoh. Now, God makes all things work together for good. And even though he uh, got his wife in trouble again, gets in trouble with Pharaoh, Pharaoh is so eager to get the curse off of his life, he makes Abraham a rich man. So God blesses Abraham even when he really didn't deserve it. And so he leaves Egypt as a a wealthy man. The caravan then returns to Bethel. And the Bible says it was here that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord again. Sarah's life with her husband Abraham is marked by altars. You trace Abraham's life by the altars that he built. Um, old brother Homer, our president of Southeastern, uh, back then it was Bible college when we were there. He said, most people spend their lives, um, building tents and, and, uh, 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 pitching altars. He says, but Abraham did the other. He pitched tents and built altars. He knew that this was not a place of of eternal residence. He was looking for a city. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how God was going to keep his promise. But he kept his eyes on the promise of God and he called on the name of the Lord. Now here's her assignment. And this is going to bring us to our conclusion as we kind of tie all of this together in just a moment. Um, God gave Sarah one of the toughest assignments of all the women that we're going to study He gave her one of the toughest assignments, and it was this, wait and be faithful. Wait and be faithful. What I want to say to you is don't be surprised if God brings a new season into your life, even if it's long past the season you associate with change. We associate change with, oh, I'm leaving high school, I'm leaving SESL, I'm leaving college, you know, or, or uh, you know, the, the early years of our life. It's funny how we measure things. I remember 21 was such a monumental birthday for me. And it, I started thinking, I don't know why it's so monumental. You know, some people say, well, you can go out and drink. I didn't want to go out and drink. I, I don't, I guess it was just 21. I felt like I was an adult. Then my next big, big uh, birthday on the horizon was 24, or excuse me, was 25. Because in Alabama at the time, at 25, your insurance rates went way down. If you were a good driver, you were considered a responsible driver then. And uh, boy, that was a big, man, I remember turning 25 thinking, oh, you know, I mean, I, I would have been a good Geico commercial, I guess, in those days. But things begin to shift and, and priority, those, those, as you get older, you don't associate it with change as much. Um, I remember Ramona and I had wanted children for years and, and I, I, it was just, it was so heavy on my heart. I know it doesn't sound 
logical maybe to you, but it was a huge thing to me that, you know, I'm about to turn 30 and I don't have a child. That was a big deal to me. I remember when I went to work on my, my, uh, my doctorate, uh, well, they, they don't even wait that long. I remember, I remember when my 40th birthday came around, um, I thought, it doesn't bother me. And I, I realized I was in such a foul mood on my 40th birthday. No, but nothing anybody did was significant enough. I mean, it was just, I was just, and I didn't even realize it till I thought, it's my birthday. Why am I in such a bad mood? It was 40, but it wasn't any different than the day before. So, so uh, when I turned 50, I said, uh, I am gonna, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. I'm going to party. I mean, we had a big party, and I'm celebrating. And uh, I, I think it was John Fisher. I, I may be pinning John with something. It wasn't him. But what, one of the guys says, well, uh, what's the difference between turning 40 and turning 50? I said, uh, 40, I, I, I hated it because of what I thought I was becoming, but there was nothing to it. He said, well, you seem awfully happy now. And I said, well, I am. He said, so there's nothing to it. I said, oh, no, no, there's a lot to this. Things hurt that didn't hurt before, you know. Um, I remember it was about that time I was just going to hop over a fence that I'd hopped over for years. And somebody raised that fence about six inches. When I started on my doctorate, I remember telling Ramona, I said, uh, you know, I said at this rate, I, I kind of hate to do this. I'm going to be at the earliest. I'll be 51 before I can get through this program. And she looked at me and said, well, if you don't quit complaining about it, you'll be 52. <laughs> and she, she said, just do it. But but we, what I'm saying is the older we get, the less we think of change. But some of the most phenomenal things happen long after you think they could never happen. You know, a second chance at love, a second chance at a career, um, you know, grandchildren. The, the list goes on and on. There was a man that was uh, the subject of a revival time track one time. He had worked so hard and he was suffering, just his knuckles just swollen with arthritis all his life. He had just gone from one day of existence to another. He had spent most of his life either being a dishwasher or a cook and uh, he had turned into a pretty good cook. But uh, he, at, at 65, he said, my life is over. I might as well retire. And he was trying to figure out how he could get by on his retirement. And somebody approached him with a business opportunity. They said, you're a pretty good cook. And by this time, he's nearly 70. And he says, oh, yeah. and they said, give it a try. So he gave it a try. And, and uh, you see him just about every day, Colonel Sanders with his uh, original recipe of 11 herbs and spices. It's finger licking good. He, he, was, he, he, said, I, he said, I honestly thought my life was over. And not only did he become uh, rich uh, because of Kentucky Fried Chicken, but it was about that time that he understood the gospel for the first time in his life. And in his 70s, he gives his life to Jesus. And it's a phenomenal story. But we don't think of things like that happening out there. In fact, we, we get bogged down in terms of lost opportunities, 
But loved ones, sometimes the best opportunities God has for you is long after you think your opportunities are gone. So don't forget that. Um, They were looking for a heavenly city, not an earthly one. And God seemed to disrupt their comfort zone in order to accomplish this change of heart. Now that's the tough thing about it. When you're young, you expect change. You expect change. You live for change, you know. But when you get old, you don't want change. Even if it's good change, you don't want it. God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, y'all are going to have a son. And Abraham, realizing how long he's carried this, realizing the age he's at, thinking of, I'm not going to fit into any of the PTA meetings. Abraham said something and it's the cry of his heart. It's a desperate, it's a pitiful cry. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, Ishmael is by now a 12, 13-year-old son. Abraham loves him. And he says, Lord, can I just keep Ishmael? I'm okay with Ishmael. And God loved Ishmael too. And God had a plan for Ishmael too. But God is bound and determined to keep his promise if we'll let him in any way, shape, or form. He says, I'll bless Ishmael too. I'll make a great nation of Ishmael too. But my promise is to you and Sarah, not you and Hagar. And it was, uh, it was just uh, such a stretching thing for him. You know... Um, David, I know you'll remember this. I was thinking about it today. Um, when, when I was here, one of the first lessons I did, and I think it was in the board, I, I don't even think it was a church lesson, but I brought in a rubber band. And I talked about how floppy and useless the rubber band was. You know, I threw it at somebody and just bounced off of them. They just laughed at it and what was going on. I said, this rubber band is absolutely useless until it gets stretched. And when it gets stretched... Now, I didn't throw the rubber band. I shot the rubber band. And it brings up a little red whelp on them, you know. Uh, Now it's a weapon. When it's stretched, it can hold things together that would normally fly apart. I know it stinks. I know it stinks. But usually, most of us are like a rubber band. Until God stretches us, we're not worth a whole lot. And, And that's what God does with people like Sarah. Um, It was during this time that Sarah, here's what Hebrews 11 says, judged him faithful who had made the promise. Here's this nearly 90-year-old woman that says, I've been hearing this for I don't know how long. I've seen everybody else have children. I've seen everybody else be happy. But at some point, something happened. She made a decision. She said, I believe God. I believe God. And God did some phenomenal things. He established a one-sided covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. You remember where God told Abraham to cut the animals up and he laid them out? And and I've told you about this. Whenever... people made covenant together they would sacrifice the animals they'd cut the animals out lay them on the ground and the two parties would walk a figure eight toward each other 
um, you know, in, in the midst of the pieces. And when they met and would shake, uh, well, they, they kind of shook arms. And I know this sounds weird to us, but the way they really kept a vow is they put their, their hand under the other person's thigh, which today could, you know, get you in court. But, uh, and, and, and some, some scholars say it was under their own thigh. But the reason, what that meant was your, your, your leg muscle is the biggest muscle in your body. I mean, that's, that's where your strength is. And when you did that or did that to the other person, you were saying, with all of my strength, with everything that is possible in my life, I will keep this vow. But you know what God did? He let a deep sleep fall on Abraham and God walked it by himself. Didn't allow Abraham to walk it. And that is so significant. And, and uh, a, a lot of times I don't think we understand how powerful that image was. God was saying, you, you become my friend and I will be responsible. Not you. See, the Bible says even if we're not faithful, he remains faithful. See, I, I, don't, I don't get to heaven because I remain faithful. I mean, there's a level of faithfulness. You know what I'm saying. But I, I'm, I'm not only saved by the grace of God, I stay saved by the grace of God. I, I, I grew up thinking that, yeah, but I'm saved by grace, but I got to work my hiney off to stay saved. No, it's by grace. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not responsible for holy living and obedience. There's two sides to every coin. You understand that. But God did a beautiful thing with Abraham. He said, Abraham, it, it was as though God was doing this. It was as though God was saying, Abraham, you just think you're old. You just think it's tough right now. Uh, remember what Hebrew says? From a man as good as dead. He says, this is going to get a lot worse. You're going to get a lot older. And it's going to look a lot bleaker. But I want you to know, not one bit of this depends on your strength. I will keep covenant. And boy, that's, that's oh, oh, it's good. Now, unfortunately, Sarah and Abraham fell into the trap of trying to help God keep his promise. They believed God. And see, we got to be careful because once we begin to believe God, we need to try to keep that faith pure because now they're saying, oh, we believe God, but we got to help him. He may not realize how old we are, you know, we got to help him. And uh, so Sarah worked out this plan. Abraham agreed with it. They did not know that God was working on his own timeline in, a, in order to make the miracle more precious and to bring glory to his name. Do you realize if they had had, if they had had um, Isaac earlier in life, they would have just said, well, we just, it was that magic blanket we used or it was, it was this home remedy or it was right time of the moon or they would have come up with a thousand and one reasons why it happened. But God said, I'm going to move you to a place where there is absolutely no explanation for this. And it'll bring glory to my name and it'll be more precious to you. And uh, when Sarah heard the promise firsthand, I mean, I, I know they were both acquainted with the promise, but you remember the, the three angels came to, to meet with Abraham. And it appears that one of them was the angel of the Lord, meaning that it was what we would call a pre-incarnate Jesus. Two of the angels after the meeting went to Sodom. 
and dealt with the, the, the sins of Sodom. But the third angel stayed behind and he's giving the word of God and he's saying, I, I, I. So that angel was God who took on a fleshly form sitting in Abraham's tent. And he says, about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And she's on the other side of the tent listening in, uh, the, the, the curtain listening in so much so that she laughs. And, and the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, you did laugh. And that's why his name was Isaac. Because God made such an utterly impossible thing come to pass. And all they could do was just giggle. All they could do was laugh. Now, um, let's, let's back up for just a minute and talk about Sarah's struggle when she gave Hagar her handmaid to Abraham. Um, two great mistakes occurred. Uh, Hagar became pregnant. And um, um, two, two bad things occurred. She began to feel superior to Sarah because she could get pregnant and Sarah could not. So she had a total lack of respect and honor. And then the second bad thing that happens is the carnal, cruel reaction by Sarah toward her. Now, uh, Hagar ends up being banished. And as she's out there about to die, the angel of the Lord comes to her and, and opens her eyes. And she sees a spring of water. And uh, God says, I'm going to bless this child. And, and my hand's on you too. I'm working something over here, but I'm going to also work on your behalf. She comes back. Mercy is shown. And um, in fact, it happened twice. I'm, 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 I'm running the story together. But um, and Ishmael was born. Um, the angel of the Lord comes and visits. Now, about a year later, Ish, uh, Isaac is born. Um, to make a long story short, because of continued animosity between Hagar and, and um, Sarah and their sons, or at least on the part of Ishmael, being a bit of a bully, they're sent away. And God says, I'll make a great nation of Ishmael as well. Now, Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born, 100 when Isaac was born. By any standards, it was a miraculous conception and birth. And this is what God had planned all along. Now, i got to say one more thing before we wrap this up. Don't be surprised if faith that is received is also faith that is tested. You think we're home free uh, Isaac is now a young teenager and God tells him to offer his son as a sacrifice. You would think that this would never, you know, Lord, after all we've been through now this, but again, you say, you say, why, why would God require anything like that? Um, the, the, the first and easiest answer to that is that God was not requiring it. God did not want him to offer his son, but he was putting Abraham to a test. It was never the intention of God for Abraham to kill his son. It was never God's intention. But he wanted to get at something in Abraham's heart. And Abraham took off on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, which is, um, many scholars believe that that's the mount that the temple was built on, uh, you know, generations later. But 
on this three-day journey, Isaac says, you know, where's the sacrifice? We've got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got everything we need. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my, uh, my son, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. You don't know what's going on in Abraham's mind until you get to the New Testament. And this is what it says in the New Testament. Abraham reasoned that if he took his son's life, God always keeps his promise. He said, I will make a great nation out of your son. So if I take his life, the New Testament says Abraham reasoned, there's only one logical conclusion. God will raise him up. God will raise him up. God will raise him up. And, and I got to tell you the truth. The, the idea of Abraham raising the knife to his son, it offends our sensibilities. It's not part of our culture. It's not part of our way of thinking. So instead of trying to in, you know, insist that we understand all the ramifications of it, what we need to focus on is that God never intended that to happen. The angel of the Lord stopped the hand of Abraham. And then that's where we get that. You know, you sing that song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. That comes from that story where it says that the Lord's provision shall be seen. He saw a ram caught in a thicket. And they sacrificed the ram instead of the son. God, don't be surprised if God tests your faith. Now here, let me give you just a couple of minutes or so each. Some quick lessons learned along the way. Here we are. Number one, when we repent, God doesn't focus on our failures. Nor should we focus on failures, whether ours or somebody else's. That's a good rule of life. And boy, is it hard to live by. Um, uh, it, it's, it's really a sign of maturity if you can grow in a relationship with your husband and your wife and not, you know, it, it, it's, it's much better to be hysterical than historical. It's much better to have a moment of, than to say, you always, or you never. There's something you ought to always remember, and it's never to say always and never, you know. Um, marriages wouldn't survive if we go back and call up the litany of failures. Uh, and that's what's interesting. I don't know if you realize this, this woman, Sarah, this phenomenal woman was, was left unprotected by her husband twice. Once with the King, uh, Abimelech once with Pharaoh. Now you say, well, what else was he going to do? There's got to be something other than putting your wife into another man's bed. It's got to be something different. Now, both times, you know, I, I can say this. I believe Abraham should have trusted God to take care of her. That's what God did anyway. But I want to tell you, for a husband to fail that way twice, it took phenomenal grace on Sarah's part. To stay in a good relationship. It wasn't just, age is not the only reason that a pregnancy seemed unlikely. You get treated that way, there's another reason pregnancy might be unlikely. But she called him Lord, is what Peter says. And that, what that means is she treated him with respect. That's point number two. Keep honoring people. When you're going through life, keep honoring people, even the ones that let you down. I have found in my life and in my life toward others, um, 
there's a lot of times in your own life or in life of people around you that you have every reason to write them off. But you don't know, you don't know how integral a part you may be playing in the full sanctification and the full process of God using them. And, and somebody, I know, I, I know it's true with me, somebody, when they had a right to write me off, didn't write me off. And what it did was give me time to grow past some ugly things and some weak things. So Sarah did that. Um, she said, I'm not going to focus on your failures. I'm not going to focus on mine. And she said, I'm going to honor you even though you let me down. See, because most of us need to realize, I know I got to, I got to stop here. We're, we're almost out of time, but most of us need to realize that, um, uh, oh, how, how can I say it? Um, you, you judge a person on the balance of their life, not an incident, not a failure, because we all have those moments. Um, number three, don't try to force the miracle like Hagar and, and Abraham did. Um, fortunately for us, even when we try to do that, God is so patient and God is so faithful. He, he's able to redeem the situation so often. But again, I want to tell you, even though he's able to redeem the situation, you can save yourself a lot of hassle. You can save yourself a lot of trouble. You can save yourself a lot of pain if you just let him do it his way. My pastor used to say, God's going to see you through. He, he, no, he didn't say it. He says, God will pull you through. The question is, can you stand the pull? You know, because he said, it'll feel like you're being disjointed. But he said, he said, God, and he, and he used to say this. I loved it. He was from a farm background. He talked about a cow they used to have that, uh, he said, most of our cows, he said, would you, you just call them and they'd just come, whether it was time for milking or feeding, they would just come. But he said, we had this one old cow that was just, just, it was as though she made up her mind. If you want me to come, I will do exactly the opposite. And, and he said, I had an old, old model, uh, 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 model A truck and, and, uh, or as much of a truck as a model A was, he said, and that cow wouldn't come. I'd pull on her. She went, he said, I'd whip her and she'd kick at me. He said, I used to just put a rope around her neck and tie it to the car and just kind of slowly drive. He said, I looked behind me one day, her legs were like this. He said, she was plowing up the field. She was not going to cooperate. He said to me, he said, Steve, I've learned that God's going to get me where he wants me to go. The question is, do I take a leisurely walk with my papa or do I dig in my heels and get dragged? And he said, I've tried it both ways. Uh, <clears throat> number four, don't shut your heart to the miraculous power of God. Sarah laughed, and you can understand, I mean, just the imagery. You can understand a 90-year-old woman being pregnant. You can understand why that would be humorous to her. It, it, it just, it, that's just not the way things were. But this, it's one thing to laugh at something that's funny. It's another thing to have a guarded heart. And I have known so many people through the years, they were good as gold, good to me, loving people, kind people, but they had just given in to a heart that was guarded 
And it was almost as if they said, I just won't believe till I have to. It's, it's, they don't even realize it. They don't even realize it. It's just something has happened, the way they've been treated or the way they were raised or something that went through life or life was so unfair. They've just developed this mindset of a guarded heart. And they believe that God is able. They even believe that God is good. But when you look at their life, they don't even know it. They don't believe he's good to me. He's good, but not good to me. And it's not rebellion. It's not hostility toward God. They've just been conditioned. And it's what I call a guarded heart. Guard against that. Uh, Let me give you one last thing. And we're going to pray. God's answers are always better than the substitutions we're willing to accept. All of us will be put in places where we believe God but we're willing to accept a substitution. Willing to accept a substitution. Um, it, it, you might be at the point where you say, you know, I've, I've, I've kept myself for the man of my dreams or the woman of my dreams. And I'm, here I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I thought by 20 and I thought by 25 and I thought by 30 and I'm still not married. And it's in those kind of situations where you're really saying, well, he wouldn't be so bad. She's not exactly what I want. But, you know, that it's kind of hard to start a life together with a kind of a, eh, why not, you know. We substitute instead of waiting for God's promise. I think of so many times that if God had not been gracious and my wife had not been wise, I would have bolted from a ministry or a situation. Well, do you feel like that's the will of God? Well, he's not telling me it's not. Do you, do you really want to do this? Well, God's not opening up any other door. I remember I was being considered at a church one time, and it, it was at a. I, I will tell this all of you that are going into ministry: God will invest as much time showing you what you are not as He does showing you what you are. And I, I mean that. Uh, there are some a couple of churches I went to that I was tempted to say, "Boy, this was not the will of God." But those churches were as much the will of God as this church has been the will of God. Because it was in those churches I had to learn what I am not and what I do not believe and what I don't think a church is. And um, Ramon and I were in a situation where we, it was one of those tough situations. We didn't have to leave. I think the people would have been glad for us to leave. We would have been glad to leave. It it was just a, eh, you know. And we were being interviewed by a church and acted like they really wanted us to come. It was one of the leading churches in the district, one of the leading churches. Um, a, a friend of Ramona's or former pastor, I forget the connection now, was, was pastor of the church. And it looked like we had a pretty good chance of going. And it looked like I just had to say yes if I wanted to go, come preach and say yes. And... Uh, but I wasn't excited. 
There was no reason not to go, but I sure didn't think there was any reason to stay where I was. So I just, I said to Ramona, I said, well, if they call us, we'll go. And I had gone out of town for the day. And, you know, sometimes when you're off driving, you, you, you get some enforced prayer time. And the Lord just spoke to me just out of the blue, just out of the blue. He said, if you let them vote, they'll call you to pastor that church. And I still wasn't excited. And after just a moment's hesitation, he said, if you go to that church, it will be the worst decision you have ever made in your life. Now, he didn't have to say anything else for me to understand that's not what I want to do. But, you know, I, I, it, it scared me years later. It scared me how close I came to making the worst decision I would have ever made in my life because I was, I was so desperate to move. I was just, I would have accepted a substitute. So I want to encourage you, stay in the saddle. Stay with what God has put into your life until he gives you clear direction that something else is his agenda. Don't accept, because his, his perfect will will always, always outshine whatever substitution you can come up with. Always. Let's pray. Father, uh, number one, and, and, and loved ones, let me say this to you. If you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, please see me or speak to one of your friends that you know is a Christian before you leave tonight and say, I, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I don't want to leave without knowing that he's the forgiver of my sins. And we'll have some material that uh, we'll pray with you and we'll give you some material that will help you in the Christian walk. If you have questions about following Jesus, please see us before you leave. If you're here tonight and I just want to pray, there's some here that I know you've you know that the Lord has promised you something. You, you know that the Lord has given you an assurance about something. And you might say, Pastor, I'm not 90, but it sure has been a long time I've been waiting on it. God said he would take care of this situation and make it right. And I sure wish he'd do it soon. God said he would do this for me. And I believe I heard from him and I know God keeps his word, but his time schedule is driving me crazy. I just, I want to pray for you. You're in good company with Sarah. Father, in the name of Jesus, please help those who are waiting for the full manifestation of your promise and your word. We believe you, Lord, even when it's not easy at times. We believe you. We know, Lord, I, I can give testimony in my life. Every time I've thought you forgot your promise, it was usually just a matter of me not understanding timing or not understanding something. You kept, you were willing to be misunderstood by me in order to do it the right way. I thank you. I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. Father, just encourage that man or woman that's here. Encourage that SESL student that's, that's wrestling with God said, but God showed me this, but I haven't seen it yet. 
Lord, may we never, may we never be afraid to say like the father of the demon-possessed child, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe you, Lord, but I'm, but I'm struggling. It looks like the enemy is winning, but you are Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. Work for us and set things in motion that will either still our hearts or bring the miracle. And we ask you to do it for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.